0: We're continuing our spilling of the coffee by the Tyler family, all right? (laughs) They even bring their own to spill it now. We used to provide it for them, but now they bring their own, okay? Uh, We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're beginning chapter 7 this week. I'll be reading to you verses 1 through 6 from the English Standard Version of the Bible. And so please follow along as I read that to you. Again, Matthew 7, verses 1 through verse 6. Jesus is teaching and He says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this family of faith. I pray that you would move your spirit amongst us despite my words, despite uh, my failures. I pray that you would convict us all in our hearts what we ought to hear this morning. Thank you for being in charge. Thank you for your glory. Thank you for uh, the fact that we are here to worship you and you alone. I pray that this sermon would do just that. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus amen. For the first four years of my marriage to Julie, we lived in Springfield, Ohio. It's just between uh, Dayton and Columbus on I-70. And uh, we were there while I was finishing up my undergrad, and um, I had my first uh, uh, ministry post there as a youth minister at a local church. And uh, the local newspaper there was called the, the News Sun, the Springfield News Sun. And they had this awful yet amazing part of their newspaper. At the bottom of the editorial page, they allowed people to write in short phrases or comments anonymously, and they would print them in the paper. It was amazing. So whenever I got the paper, I would immediately go there first, okay? And so you'd get things like, to my neighbor, mow your lawn, you know who you are, which I would think, I'm not sure he does, it's anonymous, this could really be a lot of different scenarios. But one stuck out to me, and I've never forgotten it, and here's what it said To the person that told me my tattoos were a sin, judge not lest ye be judged. That's what it said. To the one who told me that my tattoos were a sin, judge not lest ye be judged. That's what they wrote in the Springfield News Sun. Hard hitting news, right? Um, What did that person mean when they said that? What did they mean? They meant mind your own business. This is my life. Don't tell me what to do. Don't put your system of whatever on me. Now, let's let's be clear. That is uh, taking that verse radically out of context. That's not what it means. It doesn't leave me alone. You do you. It doesn't mean that. So to get at the meaning, we have to continue as we have in the Sermon on the Mount, stay in the context of the Gospel. And so as we discover... What Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, we must continue with the backdrop of the gospel, with that starting point of the gospel, the good news. And, and what Jesus is going to teach us here is that the gospel informs how we as disciples ought to be before God, our interactions with God. Our, it informs our interactions with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And it informs how we interact with the world, lost people in the world. Normally when I preach, I end with the gospel. But today we're going to start right there. We're going to start with the gospel this morning. So let me tell you what the scriptures say about this thing called the gospel. First of all, what is the gospel? The gospel means good news. Good news. In, In ancient times when a king or a general would win a victory, they'd send out heralds to say, hey, we won a victory. It was good news. And so the, the gospel, that word, is the good news of our king, his victory. And he, here's what the message is. From Scripture, we learn that, that we were created, humankind was created, to, designed to worship God, to be connected to God. And when we're connected to God, we fulfill our ultimate purpose. That's where we find fulfillment. That's where we find satisfaction. That's where we find, our, our, our the, the, we realize our, our, what we were designed to do. We're connected with God. We were created to do that. That's when we know, when we experience who we actually are, that connection with God. That's what the scriptures teach. But then the scriptures also recount that something awful happened, something terrible took place. Adam and Eve uh, were given one rule by God, and that was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and that rule really was about, hey, Just worship me. Don't worry about other things. Worship me. Be with me. They would walk with God in the cool of the evening. They had this intimate relationship, connection. They experienced what they were designed for. And yet, what was the temptation? The temptation that they heard and gave into was, if you simply eat, you can be just like God. That was the temptation. And so really, I believe before they even took a bite of the fruit, the moment they plucked whatever that fruit was from the tree, they chose They chose to rebel against their their design, their nature, which was to be with God, satisfied by God. And when they did that thing, what happened? It broke it all. It broke the universe, I say. It broke it all. So from that point on, from our first parents, humanity, when we are born, we no longer experience this intimate connection with our Creator. We, We are broken we are separated. This is the bad news. This is the problem that we face as humans. Now, here comes the good news. God, knowing that we could not resolve that problem ourselves, took it upon Himself to, to reconcile that brokenness. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to earth. God in the flesh. And what did he do? We've already heard it several times this morning in song and in word. He lived a perfect life. The life we were supposed to live. And we don't. And we can't. He did that thing. He he did every single thing that God's law requires of him. No human before, no human after has ever done that. Then he died an unjust death. And what was that unjust death? It's on me. Because My sin deserved the punishment of God, deserved the wrath of God. And what did Jesus do? He stepped in front of ransom. He stepped in front of his disciples, and he said, punish me instead. He took the punishment that we deserve for violating God's law. And he died on the cross. This brutal death, broken body, shed blood. But that's not the end. That's not the victory. The victory is three days later, he came back from the dead. And so what's the message of the Gospel? We have won. Jesus Christ has won. He's defeated death, the devil, and sin. They're under His feet. And so, the Gospel says this, that the non-work of faith, we simply say, I can't do it. I can't do it. Only Jesus Christ can do it. And only the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf saves me. And what that does is, as Steve put it perfectly, we are then represented in front of God, by Jesus Christ. And and God judges us on behalf of Jesus, not ourselves. And because of that, when we die, we will go and be with Him and live that restored way that we were designed forever. We will be with God. No pain, no sin, no tears, no suffering, no pandemic, nothing. We will live with Him satisfied, worshiping, restored. That's the Gospel. That's the summary of the Gospel. And and that Gospel is going to inform how we ought to deal with God, how we ought to deal with others, and how we ought to deal with the law. Right? Judge not. The first two words. What does judge here mean? It means to form a critical opinion by examining or scrutiny. Form a critical opinion by examining or scrutiny. Throughout all my study this week, this big word kept coming up. Censoriousness. I'm not even going to spell it but it was a word that I'd never heard before and they all used it, but here's what it means, okay? It means hypercriticism. To judge harshly. Censuriousness. If you want to use that at work sometime this week, feel free. Um, So, what is when Jesus gives the command, judge not, what is He saying? He is not saying that we simply shouldn't analyze sin. What is wrong and what is right. We'll get to this a little bit later. But, but it's more than that. It's not just saying, well, that's a sin and that's not. No, it's saying that's sin and that's not. And then attaching to that a, uh, a condemnation, a condemnation, a, a, a passing a judgment. Well, that is a sin. And so therefore, here is what you deserve or here is the thing that's true about you. So, as we think about this, judge not, I think there's actually a risk of missing the deeper issue. Yes, we should not judge others. And I think we all understand what it means to be judged by someone who's judgmental. We also know what it means to be judgmental. Let's be clear about that. We all know that experience. We all know what it's like to be that. But here's the thing I think that action is only the symptom, there's a deeper root at play. And if we don't call out the deeper root, I think we'll keep on and go on judging. And so, here's Here's the, the root of the issue. The root of the issue is when we are judgmental, when we judge, as the word is here, when we create those, uh, those opinions by examining and scrutiny, when we, when we indulge in hypercriticism or harshly judging, what are we doing? We are effectively taking the place of the judge. We make ourselves the judge. Romans 14, Paul's writing to the Roman church having some arguments about food and drink, and he says this, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. What is he asking? Who made you judge? Who made you the judge? The book of James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this book. It, some Many say that it's really a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what he's talking about early on in the book is about this practice Uh, a real practice that was going on in his times where uh, rich people would come into the church and they'd give them the best seats. At This day and age would be in the back, right? And then the poor people would come and they'd make them sit on the floor. And so they were were indulging in what they called partiality. Partiality. And here is James uh, calling out the sin of that practice. He says, have you not then made distinctions? Now that word distinctions is exactly the same word as judgment here in this passage. Among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Do you see the root issue? It's not just the fact that we become judgmental, that we hyper-criticize others based on our own system. The real deep issue, the real deep sin, is the fact that we approach the judge who just so happens to be God the Creator, and we kick Him off the bench, and we take the seat ourselves. That is the position from which we are judgmental. When we judge others, we first become the judge. We appoint ourselves as judge. So then you read the reason or the consequence. Judge not what? the end of verse 1, that you not be judged. And then verse 2, he expounds on that a little bit. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The Talmud is... uh, Commentary. Uh, it's a Jewish commentary in the Old Testament. Says this: Do not assume the place of God by deciding you have the right to stand in judgment overall. Do not do it. I say, in order to avoid being called to account by the God. Listen to these words, whose place you usurp. So, what is the, the what is the action behind judging? It's taking your own system of judgment and putting it into play. And what do you have to do to put your own system of judgment into play? You have to reject the system of judgment that is offered by God who is the right judge and so Jesus is calling us to remember our place the entire sermon on the mount Jesus is calling us back to Matthew 5:3 Matthew 5:3 it's the first few words of the sermon on the mount and what are they blessed are those who are poor in spirit we are spiritually bankrupt we have nothing <laughs> to judge by, right? We have nothing to offer in regard to being a judge. And so the idea here, what he's getting at at the end of verse 1 and in verse 2, he's saying the one who deserves to be judged is not the judge. The one who deserves to be judged, is you can't be the judge, And so in each of these sections, I believe there's a sin that we can confess. Jesus is calling us to confess something. And so in these first two verses, what is the sin that we should confess? It's the sin of forgetting who God is. The sin of forgetting who God is. Think about the Ten Commandments for a moment. A violation of any of the last nine commandments starts with a violation of the first. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And so whether you dishonor your parents or you lie or you commit adultery, the first thing you have to do is reject who God is. And then the other things fall into place. This is the same thing. We cannot scrutinize and criticize our brothers and sisters in Christ without first forgetting who God is and where we stand before him. And so what does the gospel do? That's our sin. What does the gospel do? The gospel reminds us that God is the judge and he's merciful. He's the judge and he's merciful. Again, I should have just had Steve preach this week, the report card situation. That's great. I'm stealing it. All right, I'm stealing it. If we had a report card, what would we get? Based, If you took our lives, how we live them, we match them up with God's perfect and beautiful law, what would we get? An F every time. An F every time. When we match ourselves and measure ourselves against God's perfect law, we find one thing and one thing only over and over and over again, and that is we are utterly filthy sinners. That's true for me. And so, for us to think that we could Usurp, great word, kick God off the bench and stand in His place is nonsense. But here's here's the thing that the Gospel reminds us. God, by what measure does He measure us? We know what measure we deserve to be measured by, but by what measure does God measure us? By the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When we stand before God, what should be the verdict? Guilty. A hundred percent. Yet, because we have faith in Christ, Christian, when we join in God's family, what are we judged by? What are we judged on? The perfect life and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Gospel reminds us who we are before God. We are the recipients of mercy, not the one who doles it out. Because God is exceedingly generous with us, He judges us on account of Jesus Christ. In fact, we shouldn't want to be judges because our judgment is faulty and broken. And if we judge ourselves on it, we would not pass. We need the judgment and the mercy of God in our lives. John Stott, I think, uh, encapsulates the meaning of this verse very well. He says, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Where does that generosity come from? How can we be generous when others have sin in their lives? We can be generous, we can be merciful because we have received that generosity for ourselves. So the Gospel reminds us who we are before God. And so uh, in verse 1 and 2, it talks about that uh, position that we have before God. Verse 2 again and then through 5 moves out and it talks about our relationship to the brothers and sisters of the faith. So let's look here. Verse 2 again, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in, in review here, the judgment we have received from God is generous. It's generous, right? We have not, the judgment that we receive is not the judgment that it should be. We are judged mercifully by God because of Jesus Christ. And so to judge others by our own system is to deny that generosity. Nope, I don't want it. We're going to have something harder, something than worse. And so that's what that verse is talking about. But additionally, there's this second kind of secondary meaning to the passage. And it goes like this. When you put yourselves in the seat of judgment, we use our own system of criticism and scrutiny. What should we expect in return from others? What should we expect when we are judgmental to others? What should we expect in return? This is spoken to you by Jesus in Matthew seven twelve, The golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, verse 2 has this secondary meaning. Yes, it's talking about our receipt of, of merciful judgment from God, but it's also talking about how we interact with others as we become judgmental, we forget our place before God, and we use our own system of scrutiny and start scrutinizing others and criticizing others, we ought to expect that in return. So because God is generous with us, we ought to be generous with others. And if we want others to be generous with us, how should we treat others generously, mercifully? To make his point further, Jesus tells a joke. I'm thankful for passages like three through five, we're reminded that Jesus taught with joy. He enjoyed himself. This is a ridiculous analogy. A speck and a plank, it's meant to be, it's exaggerated, it's hyperbolic, it's supposed to look ridiculous because it is. And so you can imagine as Jesus is giving this illustration, his disciples would have chuckled because it's ridiculous. And so he says in verse 3 and 4, he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? It's like a little splinter or a piece of dust. Dust. Do not notice the log, literally a beam or a plank sticking out of your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? So the idea is here, you're, you're with a pair of tweezers trying to very carefully remove a very small particle of debris from your brother's eye while you have a giant Beam of wood sticking out of your own eye—it's ridiculous. There's two concepts from this humorous illustration, and the first one is sin hurts. Uh, what, right before Julie and I got married, um, I was working construction. I, uh, my dad, I, when I grew up, my dad always was a construction worker, and so before we got married, I was going back to my roots. I was going to see what it was like. So I worked for a, a crew that framed houses. And uh, one day, we had just finished laying the, the trusses and the subfloor of the first story of this new house, and we, the sun was setting, I remember it was early spring, and um, I had just finished this section of the floor, and so uh, the last thing to do before I went home for the day was just a trudge of this under circular saw, and with no eye protection, I, I started cutting the edge of this underlayment, and this big gust of wind blew up, and it shot all the debris into my face, into my eyes. And I happened to get, it was a very sizable splinter right into my eyeball, because I was looking down right where my eyelid came into contact with my eye. It was excruciating. So, I—I I uh, Julie and I were engaged at the time, and so I had dinner with her and her brother Jeff at his house, and so I drove all the way home like this, because it's the only, the only comfortable position for my eye, and I got home, and Julie's like, what's the matter? I was like, I have, something's really wrong with my eye. And so she took me to the hospital, And on the way to the hospital, she told me that someone from her work was looking for a youth pastor, um, which happened to be I ended up getting that job. And so there's two things you want you to learn from this fun story. One, God had to stab me in the eye to get me into ministry, all right? Uh, And I haven't looked back since. But here's the other thing. specks in your eye really hurt. They really, really, really hurt. It's bad. And so this passage of Scripture, nothing about what Jesus is teaching here, is telling us we should brush over sin. A speck in your brother's eye and a log in yours doesn't mean that's no big deal, mind your own stuff. No. Specks in eyes are serious and they hurt and it's painful. Sin is painful and it must be removed. It must be dealt with. We're not told to turn our eyes away from another's error. No. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first... He gives instructions. First, take the log out of your own eye. Deal with your own sin. Acknowledge your own sinfulness. Then you will see clearly to what? Take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're not called to bypass sin. Sin is serious in the life of a believer. Jesus goes on in Matthew 18 to give us the instructions on how to do this gently and in order. We ought to confront one another when there is sin in each other's lives, but not without first dealing with the log, the ridiculous, ridiculous amount of sin in your own life. When you acknowledge your sin and then approach a brother, think about the difference. If you don't think about the log, you're going to be harsh You're going to be censorious, right? I'm not sure that's how you use that word, but we're going to use it anyway. But when you deal with the log and you understand how painful it is to remove your own sin, how deep and dark your own heart is, you will deal with your brothers and sisters in gentleness and mercy and kindness. Leon Morris says, Disciples are not to be judgmental, but that does not mean that they are to lack discernment. Sin is painful and harmful, and it must be rooted out. So what is the sin? If we're going to confess a sin from this passage, what is it? It's forgetting ourselves. The first one is forgetting who God is. And the second one is forgetting who we are. Who are we? We are fallen people living amongst fallen people. We are the same. We're broken. We must not address the sin of our brothers before addressing the reality of of our own sins. Brian Chapel says, because they are sinful human beings often excuse sins in themselves that are far worse than the sins they identify in others. The remedy to a judgmental attitude is an understanding of one's own need for spiritual healing, for righteousness, and for mercy. Again, Matthew 5.3, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We are bankrupt, and so are they. <laughs> That's why they sinned. That's why you sin. So, when we neglect our spiritual condition, what is the result? Inevitably, we will become judgmental. When we forget about our sins, we will become harsh judges of our brothers and sisters around us. Now, the good stuff Old Testament. Great example of this 2 Samuel 12. All right? This is a great example, it's juicy. King David, what has he just finished doing? He was lazy so he didn't go to war and he was on his roof and he looked out one night and saw a, a beautiful woman bathing. And instead of turning his eye away, what did he do? He sent messengers, called her into his bedroom, committed adultery with her. She was married to one of his captains, one of his soldiers, one of his faithful, loyal soldiers. And what happened? She got pregnant. And to cover that up, he committed murder. He had Uriah murdered. And so God sends the prophet Nathan, who I'm certain had a good understanding of his own sin, to confront David. And here's how he did it. You ready for this? This is good stuff. So the prophet Nathan went to God and he tells David a story. He says, I've got this problem. I need your judgment, king. Oh, wise king, I need your help. And he says, there's two neighbors. One guy's rich and one guy's poor. The rich guy has all these flocks of animals. He has lots of sheep and lots of, he's very wealthy. The poor neighbor has one little lamb. And he loves that little lamb. He treats it like a daughter. He feeds it and he holds it. They don't say much about who this guy is. I don't know who he is, but he had one lamb, all right? He's telling this story. And then he says, one night the rich man had guests and rather than being bothered to kill one of his many sheep, he went over and he took the one lamb from the poor guy. He slaughtered it and that's what they had for dinner. And David, listen to what it says and this is 2 Samuel 12. Then David's anger was kindled against that man, the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Harsh judgment. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And this is where it gets good. Are you ready for this? Middle schoolers, you're going to like this. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Not like high five kind of you are the man. Like No, you are the rich guy. You did this thing. The person that you are incensed against, the person that you are saying deserves death, is you. You did something much worse than this. You took a man's wife and killed him. So what is this? this is an example of David forgot himself. David, in, in his sense of justice, oh, how dare that man overlook the, 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 the plank sticking right out of his face. And this is what I like to call out too from this passage. What is the result of this hard thing? Can you imagine Nathan standing before a king calling out this egregious sin? There's got to be some fear there. What is the result of Nathan's boldness in calling out the speck, right? David says, he calls out, I have sinned against the Lord. Praise be to God. Something hard like that begets something so beautiful. Beautiful. Repentance. So our sin is forgetting ourselves. And the Gospel reminds us, what? Of our true identity. The Gospel reminds us that we are people. We are plank faces. That's who we are. We've got logs. Everybody has them. We are broken brothers and sisters together. And, And here's the beauty of this. There's something special about a small group of Christians who understand that they are sinful and are dedicated to one another to, to root out sin in one another's lives. There's something special about it. My, my own personal spiritual growth happens more, uh, uh, is catalyzed by that situation where I can be and share who I am and share my sins and hear theirs, and we can very carefully together remove planks and pull out specks. It's beautiful, it's important, it's almost essential. And the only way that can happen is if we remember who we are before God and around each other. We're not judges. We're not over anyone else. We are all fallen, broken sinners saved by what? The grace of Jesus Christ. We're the same. Then we get to verse 6. Which anybody who's misquoting verse one never quotes verse six. Just point that out. Uh, we come to this strange saying, maybe a hurtful saying. But this is Jesus describing to the disciple how we ought to interact with the world in some cases. So look at verse six. So this, this verse is chiastic. Uh, it goes dog, pigs, pigs, dogs. So listen, listen that way. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So when you throw to dogs what is holy, they will attack you. Those two things are connected. When you throw pearls before pigs, they will trample them because they don't know what they are. So let's talk first, before we get to pigs and dogs, the most uh, interesting part. Let's talk about holy things and pearls. Holy things here is probably referring to meat that has been consecrated in the temple. So you wouldn't take that meat that you've sacrificed to God and throw it to these wild, feral dogs. You wouldn't do that. Does it make sense? Pearls, valuable jewels from inside shellfish. That's what it is. It's talking about what it is. These things that are considered valuable. You wouldn't throw them to pigs because pigs don't know what they are. They just want garbage to eat. That's what they want. So when you throw pearls, they're just going to trample on them. It doesn't make any difference to them. So what is this valuable thing? What is this thing that Jesus is calling holy? This thing that He's calling pearls? It is the message of the Gospel. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus is telling parables about the value of the Gospel, and He says this, Upon finding one pearl of great value, the man went and sold all that he had and bought it. The, the value of the Gospel is, is more valuable than anything in our lives. And so when He says, "Throwing, uh, uh, give to dogs what is holy... Do not throw pearls before swine. What is the holy thing? What is the pearl? It is the message of the Gospel. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. What are dogs and pigs? 2 Peter 2 says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What's he saying? There is this classification of type of person who... When receiving something good, good food turns and says, I'm satisfied with my own vomit. Something disgusting. Something that, that people who are of their right minds would not do. And, and these are people who, when they are cleaned off and brought to a better state, prefer the other previous state of wallowing in the mud. So I don't get in trouble, and John Calvin does. Let me tell you what he thinks, okay? Dogs and pigs are persons who give clear evidences of rejecting the Gospel with vicious scorn and hardened contempt. So what is the image here? Presenting the valuable Gospel to folks who are saying, no, 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 I don't want it. It's, they're angry. They, they, they attack. They trample it. And so, in short, I've got a qualifying statement here from John Stott. In short, what... Jesus is saying is, listen, as you present the gospel, because guess what? We're called in Matthew 28 to present the gospel to everybody. This is not a prejudging situation like, hmm, dog. Yep. Yeah. Got you, Jenny. Mm, I don't know. man of Grace, mm, piggish. I don't know. It's not what it, you're not doing that. You're presenting the gospel to everyone. And at times, because of the way this world works and the way of the human heart, there will people who say, no, I will not hear it. And Jesus is saying, because of the value of the gospel, there should be times where we turn away from them and move to others. How can we be comfortable with this? Because salvation does not depend on our words or our logic. It depends on the sovereignty of God. So we can trust Him. Now, this is a good qualifying statement from John Stott. This teaching of Jesus is for exceptional situations only. This shouldn't be like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? No. All right. Well, oh my goodness. Right. We, shouldn't, we shouldn't walk away quickly. We shouldn't just check that box rapidly. No. Our normal Christian duty is to be patient and persevere with others as God patiently and perseveres with us. So this, again, is not about prejudging people. Hmm. That's judgmentalism, right? We just, we just heard that Jesus doesn't want us to do that. This is a message that is reminding the disciple that we carry something that's of great value, that's needed by who? Everyone. And so, to remain with someone who's obstinately against the gospel is, in a sense, to let others pass by us, whom God is bringing to us, an opportunity to share. So what he's saying is it's unwise, it's foolish, it's undiscerning for a disciple to bring that message to those who reject it outright over and over and over again. Look up, disciple. Look for those who need the valuable pearl of great price. And so if we're going to keep with this format of this sermon, what is the sin that we should confess forgetting the value of the message of the gospel? When we forget the the value of the message of the Gospel, a couple different things happen. Either we sit idle with it, we don't tell anybody about it, or we don't branch out. Well, they're they're my friend, and so I'm just going to keep going there, that one place, again, again. There are others who need it. Everyone needs it. Listen, church, the hour is late. We don't know when Christ will return. We don't know. And we have the very message of life and death. We're not peddling some self-help philosophy. We're not life coaches. Listen to Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, says Paul, for it is what? The power of God for salvation. We carry a message that is real and it changes lives. The Gospel is power and the Gospel is life Jesus says in John 5 truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life the gospel reminds us what is at stake it's not just the happiness of our friends or the comfort of our friends it is life and death it is heaven or hell it's serious it's valuable. And so as we look at Jesus in this passage, he's reminding us, listen, you stand before God as the one who is judged, not the judge. And the gospel reminds you, you have been judged with mercy because of Jesus. And that gives us great love and thankfulness towards God. That also gives us a reminder that, hey, we're the same as our brothers and sisters. We are all broken. I'm not better than or worse than. It also reminds us as we go out in this world and we share the gospel, as we we bring around this message, it's life and death. We've not just discovered something neat. We've been given the pearl of great price. We have the only thing that remedies the troubles of this world, the gospel. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for myself in this moment that these truths would not fall on deaf ears. I pray today even that You would remind me of my place before You. You have been so generous to me, a sinner. While I was yet a sinner, You sent Jesus Christ to die for me. I don't deserve that. I deserve guilty. I deserve condemnation. And yet because of Faith, you've called me one of your own. You judge me on behalf of Jesus Christ, not Ransom Kent. What a glorious gift. I pray for myself and I pray for this church that we would rem- remember that Gospel truth and we would apply that to one another. Grace is a place that cares well for one another. I pray that we, as time goes on, and remember and teach and hear the Gospel, that we would become less and less and less judgmental, because we all have that in our lives. Graciously remind us that we are all broken. We all have planks. Sure, we see the specks, but we have our own sins to address first so that we might address one another in mercy, in humility, and gentleness. I pray that we are a place that calls out Sin. I pray that we are that. We do that in a way that is not judgmental, that is not condemning, that we call out our own and say, We we are called by Christ to an exceeding righteousness. And we do that hard work with other brothers and sisters to rid our lives, to mortify the sins in our lives. And Lord, I do pray that as we go out in our lives, we remember. The message that we carry is of utmost value. It's precious. It's holy. It's valuable. May we not fling it around like it's nothing, and may we not hide it like we don't have it. May we be evangelists. And God, give us discernment. We don't have the faculties to know when it is time to walk away or to stay. I pray that You give us comfort and wisdom in those times. Thank you for calling us all to be your disciples. and We pray all these things in the name of the one we follow, Jesus Christ. Amen.